So if you remember, we're talking about in 1 and 2 Chronicles, uh, really this is a, a series of sermons that the author is writing. The author of 1 and 2 Chronicles is writing a series of sermons based on the history of Israel. He's writing at a time when Israel has already gone past all these things. Uh, Israel has already uh, been disobedient to God. They've been cast out into exile. They had gone into captivity in Babylon. And now a group has gone back to Jerusalem. The temple's being rebuilt. Jerusalem's being rebuilt. But they are a fraction of what they used to be. They went from being a first world country, a nation, to in a, in a real sense economically, a third world country. They're in a place where they're wondering, are we actually still the people of God? Does God really still have a plan for us? And so the writer is taking his material from things like 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Samuel that are before this, and he's taking that material and he's preaching with a specific idea. He's wanting to encourage them that God is still among them. God is still going to keep His promises to them. And we have to keep this in mind because if we don't, we'll read this and we'll go, how is this encouraging? How, how, how does this help us or even them? Now what's interesting about this text before us, so this, this chapter 21 is, this, this is a parallel text with uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24. We'll refer to a verse in a minute about that. But if you were to compare the two, you'd see there's some differences, some, some pretty significant differences. And this is not like a contradiction in the scripture that people like to throw out. This is the author of Chronicles taking the history of 2 Samuel and saying, I'm going to apply this now to where we are. So in 2 Samuel, if you read that version, you see that uh, basically what happens there is God is angry with Israel because Israel has, been, uh, has not treated the foreign nationals around them well. And he's going to judge them for that. That makes a great sermon by itself. But, but he's, what's going on is the author of Chronicles is taking that situation and saying, I want to show how David's failure didn't keep God from doing what he said. That God knew exactly where he, he would choose to have the temple built. And what we have in, verse, in chapter 21 shows us how, the, how we went, they went from a, a tabernacle to choosing this is the spot for the temple. That God's going to build the temple that he promised he would build David. And in this what we're going to see is really what God's purposes for the temple are. Why, does God, why did God agree to a temple being built? Why did he say he would build a temple? What does he want to do with that temple? How he deals with David in this text shows us why God built a temple. Now we said last week, didn't we, that when it comes to us being New Testament believers, what's the temple? We say, who's the temple? We are. We are. But more so, we are only the temple because Christ is. Jesus is, in human form, the temple, the dwelling place of God Himself. As God the Son, in Jesus, the wholeness of who God is dwelt bodily. That's what the Scripture says. And the reason we're called the temple of God is because He, as the place where God dwells, we are being built up as His body. He's the head, we're the body. As we're joined to Him, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. God Himself dwells in us. So we're the temple, he's the temple. So I want you to keep these things in mind because, to be honest, as we look at this text, it's going to be tempting to go, oh gosh, this is depressing. Oh gosh, this is scary. Oh no, God seems mean. 
And we have to keep in the context, one, of, of the author wanting to encourage that audience, and two, that as New Testament believers, this always points to Jesus. So, picking it up, chapter 21, verse 1, says, Now Satan, or in Hebrew would be the Satan, stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. And so David says to Joab and to the leaders of, of the people, Hey, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. This is interesting because there's nothing in Scripture that says it's wrong to take a census. In fact, listen, God's law commanded that the kings occasionally take censuses. They needed to take a census to see uh, if they had the military might they needed to take on an enemy. And they needed to take a census to see, to, to collect taxes so that the people had all their needs met. So it's not wrong by itself to take a census. And yet we have the statement that Satan is the one who's wanting to provoke David to do this. Now this is really interesting. Because we need to first and foremost understand who Satan is. Satan is not God's opposite. Don't think, okay, you got God on this side and Satan on this side. Satan and God are not your shoulder angels, okay? You know what I'm talking about, shoulder angels? That's not who Satan and God are. God is the creator of the universe, the uncreated one. He has always existed. Satan is a created being. He is Lucifer, an archangel. You might say... Satan is opposite of Gabriel, another archangel. So he's a created being, but you, most of you know this, that basically he rebelled against God, encouraged a third of the angels to rebel with him, and now their goal is, because they hate God, their goal is to destroy that which God loves. His goal is to destroy us who are image bearers of God. And so what happens is, this, he is ro roaming throughout, to and fro throughout all the earth to see who he can devour, the Bible says in 1 Peter. He is our enemy. Now here's what's interesting. We see this, that, that the author of Chronicles tells us, Satan stands up to do this. But listen to this, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, in the parallel passage, it says again, The anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he, that's the Lord, moved against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. Okay, Satan and God, are they the same thing? No. He, here's what the Bible's teaching us. The Bible's teaching us here that, that God uses Satan's bad motives for our good. In other words, Satan's uh, malice was God's means for exposing David and what David needed to be exposed in. Now this is important because, you know, you, you might have felt like it was so hard to get to church. Everything in you thought, why am I going? I just don't want to go. And you didn't know part of that is because of Satan and his demons. But God allows him to attack on a Sunday morning to expose how slow we are to come and worship God. <laughs> to expose how uncommitted we often are to come and worship God. So, so God lets the enemy do what he wants to do. And don't get me wrong, the enemy wants to destroy you. But God, he can only do what God allows him to do. And he allows him to do just so much to expose in us what needs to be exposed. To teach us to trust God more. Now, so, so this is what happens. Satan comes to test, and Joab, David's general, gets this. In verse 3 it says, So Joab answered, May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. 
David, man, uh, you have lots of people on your side. We're going to see that the, really what David wanted to know was what kind of a military he had. So David, you got lots of a big, mighty military. We know you're a warrior. Don't do this. Job could sense, your, your heart's not right in this. Don't be counting to see how mighty your, your military is. In fact, he says in verse 3, Why should you be a cause of guilt in Israel? It's important to understand, too, at this point, that when the king makes a decision, it affects the whole nation. That shouldn't be hard for us to understand, should it? No. When politicians, when parliament makes a decision, it affects the whole nation. Leaders make choices that are for the good or the bad of the people they're over. That's the way it works. Which is why you need to pray for us in leadership. So he says to him in verse 4, or it says in verse 4, Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab goes and he does the, the whole census and he finds out that there's 1,100,000 men who drew the sword in Israel and 470,000 who drew the sword in Judah. Now, just to say, these numbers are probably a typographical area. There probably wasn't that many soldiers. Big army, but probably not that big. But, but the point is, the point that the chronicler is trying to make is the fact that David was obviously wanting to see what kind of military might he could come up with. And it's, it was interesting here is a mili- this military strength, looking at military strength, shows David's maybe a temptation here to be self-reliant. Remember, David says, Lord, I, I don't want to live in a... It's not fair I live in this beautiful home and you don't have a temple. I'm going to build you a home. And, and God says, no, David, you're not. I'm going to build you a home. I'm going to build you a house to worship in. And we'll find out later on the reason for that was because David had a lot of blood on his hands. He was a warrior and God wanted his house to be a house of peace built by a man of peace. We'll talk more about that next week. But there's a reality that... Um, There's a a sense that maybe what happened was, when this happened, David thought, okay, Lord, you're great. You're going to build this house. It's wonderful. But as maybe time went on, maybe David started thinking, you know, what am I? If I can't build the temple for God, what am I? I know what I am. I'm the warrior king. Maybe in his pride, he started thinking, I wonder how strong I actually am. There's an indication this is kind of towards the end of his life. So maybe as he's getting older, he himself can't go out there and wield the sword or the, or the slingshot. But he can see how powerful his army is. And Joab senses this and he says, don't do this. And so it says in verse 5, that, or I'm sorry, in verse 6, that, uh, that Joab didn't count the tribes of Levi and Benjamin. That's not just two people, but two tribes. Among them, for the king's word was, an abom- it was abominable to Joab. In other words, it made him sick. It was, he detested it. This is interesting. Because here Joab has been a faithful general to David. He's been someone who's been on David's corner. But David in his pride, man, it really just is making Joab sick. And this is what, what frustrates us about leadership, is when leadership gets really arrogant. They think they can do no wrong. It's difficult. I, I, I'll, I, I'll confess to you guys, I have the kind of personality, I'm, I'm happy to take charge, I'm happy to plow forward, i got no problem making decisions, telling people what to do. Very easy for me to do. And that often looks very arrogant, I don't think it is always very arrogant, but often looks very arrogant, and I have to be careful because it can easily be, come for me, where if I am doing that, and people are doing what I say, I can get puffed up. Look at this, I am such a great leader, everyone does what I say. Look out. It's very dangerous. Now, this is something else that I really want you to see. It's really important. Remember, David is God's chosen king. And here he is as God's chosen king, and he fails miserably. And God wants to expose the failure. 
His failure is one of motive, but that motive is hugely important as king, as God's chosen king. He fails miserably. But here's, here's great news for us. Where David failed, Jesus succeeded. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 4. We see a parallel scenario. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is just beginning his ministry. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Do you see that? God using the devil to even test Jesus or tempt Jesus. Then, then he's tempted three times. You guys probably know the whole story if you want to read the whole context. He, he keeps bringing the word of God back before Satan. He stands strong and here's what ends up happening. Jesus says to Satan, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. And what happens? The devil left him, and, be, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So Jesus had, four, had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and he's tempted by the enemy, tempted by Satan during this time. And does he fail? No. He totally succeeds. See, God is also using Satan to expose something in Jesus. He's using Satan to expose in Jesus perfection. The perfect Son of God. The, the King that we can actually trust. The King who can't fail. Keep that in mind as we continue to go through 1 Chronicles. So then, verse 7, right? So here, here's the thing I, I need to say to you before actually I move on to the next point. What God's doing here is He's exposing David's heart. And He's doing that because God loves authenticity. God does not want us to act like we are something we are not. He does not want us to do something thinking, oh, justifying, oh, this is what God would have me do, when inwardly we're doing it out of pride or malice or something else. And, and, and this, is, this points to one of the reasons God's building this temple. He's going to build this temple, and we'll see this when Solomon dedicates the temple. Part of it is so that people can come and see who they are before a holy God and stop playing games. Stop trying to hide behind religion. Be completely exposed before God and know that He's made a covenant with you just as you are. Now, second bit though goes from God exposing David's heart to God provoking David's repentance because the second part of the second aspect of the temple, the second purpose for the temple is to show them that what God means by holiness. So look at verse 7. In verse 7 it says, And God was displeased with this thing, and therefore he struck Israel. So probably the plague that we'll see in a minute started early on. And so David sees this and he says to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now I love this because this does show us that David did realize his sin. In fact, this is important because David's repentance began with the recognition of his sin, just like our repentance begins with our recognition of sin. Now, repentance, it's one of those words to say repent or repentance. It's a, it's, it feels like a negative word, doesn't it? Like, like you, you, you picture some kind of manic street preacher, not the band, but an actual preacher, you know, yelling like, repent, repent. I mean, you picture that happening, right? But actually, repentance is a great word. Repentance simply means this. You were, you were focused on something bad, and you turn from that, and you turn to focus on God. So it's not just a turning away from something bad, it's a turning to God himself. And that's what David's doing, isn't it? David's going, oh man, I should have never done the census. And he's not just saying, I should have not done this, he's saying, God, forgive me. Take away the iniquity of your servant. Now this is good, 
This is a good beginning, but God wants repentance to go further. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to, to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose for yourself either three years of famine, three months of, defeat, uh, of being defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, that is the plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. So Gad is a seer, just another word for a prophet, someone who would, who, would, who would see visions from God or hear words from God and then bring that to David or whoever else needed to hear it. And he brings this, this message from God. God's basically saying, okay, here's the deal. I, I hear that you're repentive, but I want to see fruit worthy of repentance. I want to see that you really understand the damage that your sin does. And so to do this, David, for your sake and for the sake of my people, I'm going to give you three choices. You have three. You can choose your chastening, so to speak. You can choose the way that I'm going to bring correction. Now, the first two ways are interesting. The first two ways, David could have probably escaped any personal pain if he would have chose one of the two ways. He could have, he could have said, you know, the, the first one, of course... Uh, where is it? Lost my place. Uh, yeah, the, the three years of famine. David was wealthy. He could have made sure he and his house had enough food to eat, even though he, had to, he would have had to watch God's people starve. Or the, the, three, um, uh, the three months of being defeated by your foes. David was king, probably older. He wouldn't have gone out to battle. It would have been his generals and his soldiers that would have fought in this place. He could have been protected. But this three days of pestilence from God... That's nondescript. That, that kind of a disease being, being spread throughout the land, he could have got that. And, he, and, and I can't help but think that God was testing him to say, okay, are you really repentant or you just do not want the consequences for your actions? See, this is one of the things about repentance that's really important. And this is one of the things that, that God wants us to see with his temple, Jesus. Is that Jesus, the first word out of his mouth in his preaching was, guess what? Repent. It was turn from your sin and turn to look and what God, see what God has provided for you. And re, but repentance, listen, it has to be a willingness for us to see just how damaging our sin actually is. I mean, think about this for a second. If your sin was just kind of like, oh, everyone makes mistakes, then why did Jesus have to die? That seems a bit extreme, doesn't it? But our sin is much greater than that. It does much more damage than that. And God, in giving David these choices, as, harsh, as hard as this is for us to, to get our head around why God would do this, he's doing it out of mercy, not just to David, but to all of God's people, to show, do you see how serious your sin is? That when you choose to sin, even when you think people don't see your sin, when you choose to sin, it does damage to everyone around you. So God's wanting him to, to get to a place where he begins to recognize how his, how his sin affects others. Now, in a real sense, too, God is saying, David, there's no way your sin cannot affect those who you're responsible for. A group of, of men uh, and I are, are um, reading, there's a group of us reading a book about biblical eldership or leadership. 
And the stuff that we're going to be discussing in a couple weeks' time deals with the character of leaders. And I'll tell you what, man, I spent a lot of time on my knees this week reading that, those chapters again. I've read that book a couple times before, but reading it again, I'm going, oh God, forgive me. Forgive me, because I fall so short of what I should be as a leader. Because the thing that God exalts in leadership is not skill, talent, giftedness, charisma. It's character. It's holiness. And then that I have to confess a lot to the Lord and ask Him to forgive me. Because God takes it really serious. The kind of life that we live. Because listen, God's not just saying, here's a standard, go for it. As Christians, God says, Jesus is our standard, and I'm working in you by your Holy Spirit to reach that standard so that just like Jesus has enjoyed me forever, you can enjoy me forever. He takes it serious because he wants to bring us into this relationship. And we can't be in a relationship with a holy God unless we ourselves are pursuing holiness. So David, his repentance needed to mature by recognizing how his sin affected other people. So what happens? Verse 13, you can imagine. Verse 13, David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Man, don't you wish you could have seen this? I mean, I, I can just imagine what David's feeling. This is David. David stood before a giant and said, he, God will give us strength. Take, this, take that guy on. This, David's not a coward. He's a brave guy, but man, I'll tell you what. When he, when he hears this word from God and he knows he's guilty and he knows his sin's going to affect God's people, he's like, oh God, I'm in such distress. I'm in such distress. And look what he says, verse 13. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. Whew. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying it, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. We'll talk about that guy in a second. So what happens? God keeps his word. God actually follows through with the promise to bring the consequences for David's sinful choices. But here's what's amazing. David, when he's stuck with this choice, and he knows he has to choose something, and he's a, he knows how serious the consequences are going to be, he still falls into the merciful arms of his God. This is often why we don't repent. We often don't repent because we don't actually believe God is as merciful as the Word says He is. We don't believe that he's actually as merciful as Jesus has shown himself to be. And so we don't repent. We try to just kind of push down our sin, or ignore our sin, or, or explain away our sin, or define it not as sin. This is what we do. And we do that because the idea that we stand before this perfect, holy God... As the scripture says, all things are naked and open before him to whom we must give account... If we're accountable to this perfect God, it's so freaky to think about that. We think, no, no, I've got to think of something else. But we, we, we need to remember this. Listen, this is what the scripture wants us to know. This is the gospel. The goodness is that, yes, our God is perfectly, completely holy, distinct. Can't even be tempted by evil. Can never do evil. Hates all sin. And that God, because he hates all sin, 
put on human flesh and went to a cross and was crucified. You know why? That he could show us mercy. Hey, if you're in a place right now where you're, you're, you're continuing to dabble in a sin or you think you're dabbling, but you're continuing purposely in a sin, maybe it's something that you know you should be doing and you just refuse to do it. No, 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 I'll, I'll get to that later. I'll get to that later. That's sin. To, not do, to know what's good and not do it is sin. Or maybe what it is, is that you're, there's something that you're doing, an activity you're involved in that you know you have no right to be involved in as a Jesus follower, and you're going, oh man, I've got to stop doing this. You need to know something. God takes that sin seriously. God calls you to holiness. God calls you to repentance. And the thing that's going to motivate you to that repentance is His mercy. The scripture says it's His kindness that leads us to repentance. David's repentance continued because of those enduring mercies of God. The old King James refers to the mercies of God is the sure mercies of David. Which is this idea that God's always been consistent in how much mercy he's shown David. So, so God wants to show mercy. Mercy's a priority. That's what the temple's about. Go, I'm sorry, not mercy. We're going to get to mercy right now. Um, authenticity is, 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 what, is what the temple's about. God wants us to be real before Him, not trying to hide behind some sort of religious mask. Holiness. God wants us to be those who actually turn from our sin because He forgives our sin and He frees us from our sin. Jesus gives us that. But also God's about mercy. Look at verse 16. Here we're seeing God's going to restore David's fellowship. Verse 13. I'm sorry, not verse 13. Verse 16. I apologize. Verse 16. Then David lifted his eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched over Jerusalem. And so David and the elders clothed in sackcloth, that's like really itchy cloth that is a sign of mourning, fell on their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed. But these sheep, that is these people, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord my God, be against me and my father's house, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. So it's like God kind of takes the veils off David's eyes so he can actually see this angelic being with a sword drawn over Jerusalem. Can you imagine being like, you know, what's the name of the hill near the jail where you can oversee uh, what's it called? Mousehold, yeah, yes. You go to Mousehold, you see you, you look over uh, Norwich, you go, oh, it's a beautiful sight. Boom, there's an angel with a sword over it. A flaming sword. Ah! I mean, how freaky would that be? And when he sees this, he, what does he do? He dresses in clothes that show that he's mourning, that he's broken over what's happened. He grabs his elders together with him, and he says, we got to seek God. And he says, God, please have mercy. Now you might be thinking, what does this have to do with re restoration? Shouldn't this have been fit in the point about repentance? No, because this is what God's doing. God's showing David that he's restored his heart. You see, David, his temptation was to begin to have this, tempt this, this heart of a leader as a military man. I'm going to conquer. I'm going to bring forth what God wants. I'm going to have great victory. And God says, no, you're supposed to be a shepherd. And so it takes him to this point of repentance. The, 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 the fruit of repentance is this restoration. God is restoring to him a shepherd's heart. 
God, don't, please, don't let these people suffer anymore. Let it just be on me. See, now David didn't have the means to atone for the, the nation's sins. So David couldn't stop the judgment of God. He could only beg God to stop judging. But where David failed, Jesus succeeded. Come on. We're going to see in a minute how that works. So then in verse 18, what does it say? Therefore the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. But Ornan continued threshing his wheat. Ornan's name means strength. So his sons are working with him. And when they see the angel, they go, ah, they panic and hide in some nearby cave. Ornan's just kind of threshing the wheat, whatever. Angel, who cares? But what happens? Listen. So then, verse 21, So David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David, and he went out from the threshing floor, and he bows down before David with his face to the ground. And then David said to Ornan, Grant me this place of the threshing floor, not just the threshing floor itself, but the whole area. The whole, all the land around it. That I may build an altar on it to the Lord. You shall grant it to me at the full price that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now you understand what's going on here, okay? Basically what's going on here is, is, is David is now, not only is his, his shepherd's heart being restored, but his commitment to obedience is being restored. Again, we don't, if we obey, if we think we're going to obey because, okay, if I obey just enough, then God will accept me. You know what's going to happen? Either one, you're going to get puffed up and deceive yourself in thinking that your obedience is enough, and it's not, because none of us obey perfectly. Or you're going to go, forget it, I quit. I just, I can't be a Christian. I can't follow God because I, I just can't, I just, I just can't obey enough. But when you recognize how merciful God is, you know what you do? You say, God, I'm committed to obey you because, man, you are so much more merciful than anybody else. Now, I want to say, if you're not a Christian today, let me just say, I know that sometimes Christians don't act very merciful. I know that, and I apologize for that. Sometimes we're not the most merciful people. We need to know that the God of the Bible that we follow is radically merciful, and often when we're not showing mercy, it's because we're not trusting in His mercy. We don't actually believe we've been shown some of His mercy. So, but David's committed. God says to him through, through Gad, go up and buy this threshing floor. David obeys. He goes up and says, I'm going to buy this threshing floor. Now, this is interesting too. You may not know this, but so, so a threshing floor is basically where they would gather all the wheat in and they would, they would take an um, oxen and this kind of heavy tool that would kind of roll over this wheat and it would break the kernel from the chaff and they would have this threshing floor be kind of like small walls on the top of a hill where the winds would be blowing. And the, when they would crack together, they would get these, these rakes and things, these shovel things, and they'd shuck the stuff in the, in the air, and the heavy kernels would fall to the ground, and the chaff, the stuff that went around it, would blow off to the side. Okay, That's a threshing floor. So David's going up to this hill in Jerusalem. Keep that in mind. 
And so he says, I want to buy this place. Now what's interesting is, is uh, Ornan, he doesn't bow to the angel, but he bows to God's chosen king. And he says to him, verse 23, But Ornan said to David, Take it to yourself, and let my lord the king do what is good in his eyes. Look, I will also give you the oxen for burnt offering, and the threshing implements for wood, and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all to you. Now this is, this is a really humble attitude of Ornan. You're, the, you're God's chosen king. All that I have is yours. You can have it. So then, verse 21, So David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David, and he went out from the threshing floor, and he bows down before David with his face to the ground. And then David said to Ornan, Grant me this place of the threshing floor, not just the threshing floor itself, but the whole area, the whole, all the land around it, that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. You shall grant it to me at the full price that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now, you understand what's going on here, Okay. Basically, what's going on here is, is, is David is now, not only is his, his shepherd's heart being restored, but his commitment to obedience is being restored. Again, we don't, if we obey, if we think we're going to obey because, okay, if I obey just enough, then God will accept me, you know what's going to happen? Either one, you're going to get puffed up and deceive yourself in thinking that your obedience is enough, and it's not, because none of us obey perfectly. Or you're going to go, forget it, I quit. I just, I can't be a Christian. I can't follow God because I, I just can't. I just can't obey enough. But when you recognize how merciful God is, you know what you do? You say, God, I'm committed to obey you because, man, you are so much more merciful than anybody else. Now, I want to say, if you're not a Christian today, let me just say, I know that sometimes Christians don't act very merciful. I know that, and I apologize for that. Sometimes we're not the most merciful people. We need to know that the God of the Bible that we follow is radically merciful. And often when we're not showing mercy, it's because we're not trusting in his mercy. We don't actually believe we've been shown some of his mercy. So, but David's committed. God says to him through, through Gad, go up and buy this threshing floor. David obeys. He goes up and says, I'm going to buy this threshing floor. Now, this is interesting too. You may not know this, but so, so a threshing floor is basically where they would gather all the wheat in and they would, they would take an um, oxen and this kind of heavy tool that would kind of roll over this wheat and it would break the kernel from the chaff. And they would have the threshing floor be kind of like small walls on the top of a hill where the winds would be blowing. And the, when they would crack together, they would get these, these rakes and things, these shovel things, and they'd shuck the stuff in the, in the air. And the heavy kernels would fall to the ground and the chaff, the stuff that went around it, would blow off to the side. Okay, That's a threshing floor. So David's going up to this hill in Jerusalem. Keep that in mind. And so he says, I want to buy this place. Now what's interesting is, is uh, Ornan, he doesn't bow to the angel, but he bows to God's chosen king. And he says to him, verse 23, But Ornan said to David, Take it to yourself and let my lord the king do what is good in his eyes. Look, I will also give you the oxen for burnt offering and the threshing implements for wood and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all to you. Now, this is, this is a really humble attitude of Ornan. You're, the, you're God's chosen king. All that I have is yours. You can have it. But we're going to see in a second, David says no for a good reason. Then King David says to Ornan, no, but I will surely buy it at full price. Now, again, he's buying this whole hill. 
For, listen, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. Now this is important. A burnt offering was not an offering that took away sin. That's not what its purpose was. That would have been a sin offering or a trespass offering. A burnt offering was an offering of dedication. It was when you took a, a, a valuable animal, you placed your hands on it to say, Lord, this is, this is my value on this. This is all that I am on this. And you give it to the Lord to be sacrificed. It's sacrificed and the whole thing is consumed by the fire. There's nothing left of it. The meat's not divided up to the priests like the sin offerings and other offerings. This is consumed. And it's a way to say, God, I am fully yours. So David is not saying, listen, uh, this is me atoning for the sins of Israel or for even for my own sins. This is just David saying, God, I have to trust your mercies and say, I am totally yours. And to say totally yours is just that, is to say totally yours. You see, listen, David understands the cost of restoration. He understands that to be restored means to come back to the place where you recognize all that I have and all that I am belongs to God. Guys, that's not radical Christianity. That's normal Christianity. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 14, verse 33. Jesus said, For whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So if you're here today and you say, I'm a Jesus follower, I'm a disciple of, of Jesus, are you willing to say, Lord, it's all his? Because if you're not willing to do that, you're not his. See, we don't earn a position with God through, hey, I'm surrendering it all, therefore I earn this position. No, we recognize that through Christ we've been given a great position. We've been given the honor to know Jesus, to follow Jesus, and to be made like Jesus. And if we're going to be made like Jesus, as he surrendered all to the Father, we surrender all to him. So the picture that we have back in Chronicles is David saying, Lord, I'm a failure, but all that I have is yours. All that I am is yours. See, the reason David's doing this is because what's going on is God's going to restore his hope for the future. Don't remember, don't forget, a couple of chapters ago in chapter 17, we saw the promises that God made to David. David, there's always going to be someone on your, from your, uh, your ancestry that's going to be on the throne of Israel. There's, I'm making you an eternal promise. He's going to reign forever. And you're, I'm going to build the temple that you wanted to build. I'm going to build it uh, for you and for your people, for my people. David, I'm going to do all this stuff. And here David's failed miserably, and God doesn't say, okay, fine, you failed. You don't get the temple now. No, it's just the opposite. God says, you failed, and I'm building this temple for failures. <laughs> I'm building this temple for, for people who know they desperately need the mercy of God. So what happens? Verse 26, we're almost done. And David built there an altar to the Lord. It's in this threshing floor. And he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Again, those are, here's my whole life, Lord, and I just want to fellowship with you. A peace offering is saying, God, I want to experience, I want to live in the peace that, that we can have together. No enmity between us. And he called on the Lord. In other words, he didn't just kind of do some religious ritual. He did this and he said, oh God, I need you. 
Oh God, please have mercy on your people. Oh God, please restore us back fully to where you want us to be. And what did God do? And God answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt sacrifice. And so the Lord commanded the angel and he returned his sword to its sheath. Can you imagine? He, he gives Orn on the money. I'm buying this whole hill. It's, I don't care how much it costs me. 600 shekels of silver or gold. I'm buying this whole hill. He, he builds the altar. He finds the sacrifice. He slays the sacrifice. and He, just, he, he lays it on the altar. Lights it on, it doesn't light on fire. Lays it on the altar and says, God, this is it. <coughs> I'm yours. I just want to walk in obedience to you, Lord. And he could have pretended just to kind of light it and just trust, okay, God told me to do this, I'm just going to do it. And, and there, there could have been no experience, but in this case, there was a grand experience. Fire from heaven consumes it. You know why it happens this way? Because even though this was not the place of sacrifice, the place of sacrifice, we'll read in a second, was across the city of Jerusalem. A place that David couldn't get to because he sees the vision of an angel with a sword. You don't want to cross the city when there's an angel with a sword over it. So he can't get there. And God says, here's where I want you to do it. So he says, okay. And how does he know God's pleased with it? It's just consumed like that. This is God's way of giving an enthusiastic, yes! That's what I'm talking about. It's God's way of saying, I approve of this sacrifice, David. I restore you to myself. And this is the place I'm going to dwell. Right here on this hill. You know what's amazing about that hill? That hill is Mount Moriah. It's where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, where the father sacrificed the son. See, what David failed to do, God did for David, and even what God did for David, pointed forward that what God would do for the whole world that he so loved, God would send his own son and sacrifice him on the hill. That right outside the temple, right outside the hill, I should say, outside Jerusalem, Jesus would be sacrificed for us. Our temple would become our sacrifice so that we could become that temple. You see, this is why we read in verse 28, it says, at that time, David, when he saw the Lord had answered him in the threshing floor of Ornan, a Jebusite, he sacrificed there. He said, okay, this is the place to do it. For the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of burnt offering, which Moses had made in the wilderness, were at the time at the high place of Gibeon, that's across Jerusalem. But David couldn't go there because, uh, before to inquire of the Lord because he was afraid of the sword of the angel. And then verse 20, or chapter 22, verse 1, then David said, this is all connected. Forget about the chapter break. This is all connected. Then David said, this is the Lord, the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. This is the place. This is the place. Listen, here's the place where you can be completely authentic. Where you don't have to put on airs. You don't have to act like you're something you're not. You don't have to feign religion. The place where you can be authentic, it's at the cross of Jesus. This, listen, this is where you can see holiness, God's hatred of sin, and God's great mercy. Those things come together at the cross of Jesus. This 
This is where you can come and have fellowship restored with your creator at the cross of Jesus. I can imagine the, the first readers of this looking at kind of a half-refurbished temple and a half-refurbished city and living in, you know, probably dire means and hearing this and going, okay, Lord, if you're this zealous about this place, we're going to meet you here. Not knowing what this was going to point to and several hundred years later. But here we are, this side of the cross, and we can look back and say, yes, God, you're that enthusiastic in meeting us. You want to meet us. I'm going to close with this parable that Jesus told. It'll be on the screen. I did it in the wrong order, but it's still good for us to read this parable. It's from uh, Luke chapter 18. Listen. Also, Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Those are inauthentic people. And despised others. Here's the parable. Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, that would be a religious leader of his day. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, tax collectors. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But the tax collector, a guy who knew how despised he was by men and knew how guilty he was before God, the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to the heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen, you might be in that place where David is, where you, God has been blessing you, but then you started to exalt yourself, and God's going to say, whoosh! And he's going to do that. Listen, he's going to pull the rug out from under you. He's going to humble you for this reason, that he may exalt you in due time, that he may show you mercy, he may give you grace. Hey, maybe you just feel like your life is not the way it's meant to be. It's not. <laughs> Even if you feel like your life's pretty good, it's still not made the way it's meant to be because your life is meant to be lived with and for your creator and redeemer, Jesus. And God loves you so much, he'll do whatever it takes to humble you, to get you to a place that you know you need him. Don't wait for that. Don't come here, please don't come here and try to imitate religion. Forgive us if we give that vibe that that's what you're supposed to do. That's not what we want you to do. Humble yourself. Say what this man prayed, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Because, guys, that's what we all have to pray on a daily basis. Let's pray that now. Father, we're, we're not tax collectors, but we're definitely all sinners. Lord, we should be despised by people, and often we're not, Lord. If people knew everything that we do and think, we would be despised by people. But more than that, Lord, we stand before you as those 
where every thought, motive, deed is exposed. Lord, we think of you, Lord Jesus, and how you loved perfectly, and we look at ourselves and we fall so radically short. Lord, you've given us every good gift, and yet we don't thank you for anything. Have mercy on us sinners, Lord. Father, I pray for anyone here who is yet to understand or put their faith in the Jesus of the Bible. Lord, we, we know, Father, we know that Jesus is your Son, clothed in human flesh. He's God. And his death on the cross is the perfect and permanent sacrifice. We don't have to slay any animals because he was slain for us once for all. And so, Lord, we know we don't deserve your mercy. But because of what he's done, we say, have mercy on us sinners. And we choose to believe that the mercy that you have for us is available through Jesus. Father, save us. Change us. Lord, help us to remember that you sent Jesus so that we would know, so that we could be authentic. We don't have to hide from you anymore. We don't have to act like we're something we're not before you. You see us as we are and you accept us because of Jesus. Lord, we can pursue holiness. We can actually learn to love the way you love, to hate sin because we love the way you love, because your spirit dwells within us. Lord, thank you that you are the restorer of all things. Thank you, Lord, that you restore us each time we turn back to you. And we look forward to that day that you come back soon, Jesus, when you'll restore all things. And tell them, Lord, may we keep turning to you and remember that your mercies are new every morning. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees says, Amen. Amen.